Um, I was looking back through my journals uh, this week. I have a shelf essentially full of them, a large shelf. I counted 26 journals that I started when I was, the, the first one, the first date was from 1980. I was still in high school when I wrote my first journal entry. And I read it with some degree of uh, levity. It was a bit light for me to read that and the, the heavy weight that I bore in 1980 that I couldn't believe the world uh, and uh, oh, how melodramatic I once was. In any case, um, as I was looking back over my journals, at the height of, of uh, I had a separate set of journals um, of, that were for prayer, that were my prayer journals, where I would write down all my prayer concerns. And at the height of my prayer journal, I had seven pages of lists of people to pray for um, and things to pray for in the world. This was probably at the height of my prayer lists in the early to mid-90s, if I remember correctly, about seven pages. And somewhere around in the middle of the 90s, I just realized that I was no longer praying for those people anymore. You know, the best I could, you know, I would be doing just as well to put my hand on top of the prayer journal and say, God, you know the people that are in here. I'm not even sure. I got to a place where some of the people that were on the first page of my journal were something that somebody, someone told me I should put them down and pray for them. I no longer even remember what they were in my prayer journal for. Maybe I didn't even need to be praying for them anymore because they completely recovered from whatever it was I was praying for them to begin with. But it would take me no less than an hour at a time to pray for my seven pages of uh, a prayer. Now let me just tell you, that may sound like I was a great prayer warrior, but I was wasting a lot of time. I was wasting a lot of God's time and my time in trying to list name after name after name after name after name that I no longer knew who they were or could even picture in my mind. And perhaps God has a different understanding of what prayer is supposed to be all about. And that's where we're going today. On the mountain, right in the middle of the section we talked about the show last week, is a section on prayer. Some of it's going to be really familiar to you, and some of it may not be. And I think it's something, though, we need to listen closely to what Jesus is saying to us. These are the words of Jesus. Remember, this is his Sermon on the Mount. All three chapters chapter 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew are Jesus on the mountain preaching, sharing a message. And the gathering of those begins this piece on prayer. And what's interesting to me is the title of this section, Proper Prayer, as if there is such a thing. But in any case, that's what the titlers of the Common English Bible have called this section, Proper Prayer. So Let's listen to this section on what proper prayer is, and then we'll break it down a little bit to talk about how it applies to our lives. When you pray, don't pour out a flood of empty words as the Gentiles do. They think that by saying many words, they'll be heard. Don't be like them, because your Father knows what you need before you even ask. Pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, 
uphold the holiness of your name, bring in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it is done in heaven. Give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us for the ways we have wronged you just as we forgive those who have wronged us and don't lead us into a time of temptation but rescue us from the evil one. Now there's a little section here that goes on about forgiveness. If you forgive uh, others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Uh, Some tough words. I'm not talking about them this morning. I just thought, well, give you something harsh to chew on at the end of that little piece there. When you pray, don't pour, pour out a flood of empty words as the Gentiles do. You know, sometimes I grew up thinking how eloquently our preachers prayed. I, I grew up, you know, uh, listening to some of the most eloquent prayers I've ever heard in my life. And they had a lot of words. And a lot of those words didn't mean a word thing to me, not a single thing. But they were eloquent, and they were pretty. Uh, I suspect that if they didn't mean a whole heck of a lot to me, perhaps they didn't mean a whole lot, a heck of a lot to anybody else, maybe even including God. Because according to this list here, the very first thing Jesus says is, when you pray, don't pour out a flood of words. You don't need a whole bunch of words. I, you know, this story reminds me of the story in the Old Testament It's a wonderful story about, uh, um, okay, it's a wonderful story. So wonderful that it's completely slipped my mind. It's in 1 Kings chapter 19. It's uh, Elijah is going against it. See, I'm sorry I had to work through that. You know, I still have an analog brain, not a digital one. I can't always make the connections. I had a list in my mind. In any case, Elijah is fighting with the prophets of, of Baal, really Baal, just means Lord in another uh, language. In any case, he's fighting with them, and they're having this kind of, uh, of pray-off, this sacrifice-off. There's two big piles of wood, they make a big, big pile of wood, and they said, why don't you make a, a, a sacrifice to your God? And so, uh, but instead of lighting it on fire, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to call down your God's fire from heaven to light your, uh, light your fire. And so they start praying first thing in the morning, and nothing happens, and nothing happens. And then they start doing all these things, like cutting themselves and doing all these things to try to attract their God's attention. And in the middle of the day, kind of to poke at him a little bit, Elijah says, you know, maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe if you just get a little bit louder, a little bit louder, say a few more words, dance a little bit more, maybe, maybe he'll wake up and he'll bring the fire from heaven. So they keep doing this all day long. Nothing happens. Nothing happens at all. And so then Elijah has them throw water on his wood and everything else. And he just looks to God and says, you know, show your stuff. And boom. The whole thing catches on fire for the uh, sacrifice to be made. They spent the whole day, lots and lots and lots of words, and I think sometimes we're like those prophets of Baal. We think that we'll get God's attention if we ask enough times, the red Ferrari will just appear in our driveway. I used to talk about red Ferraris a lot as a part of my prayer life, and eventually one of of our uh, families who used to go to St. James gave me a matchbox red Ferrari. So I got my wish, so I don't have to pray for it anymore. It appeared 
it's in my West Virginia house. It's parked right in on my shelf in my bedroom. I can look at it all the time and say, isn't it great to pray for pointless things? Because I really needed that red Ferrari, and I've got it now. It's on my shelf. Uh, and it's a beautiful little red Ferrari. If I could get in there and drive it, it would be cool. But uh, the truth is, we think that we need to attract God's attention. As if God doesn't already love you, doesn't already want the best for you, we figure we better keep listing and keep begging and keep asking and keep, keep, keep. If we say enough words, God will bend to our will. And I think in the end, that's really what it's about. If I say enough words, God's going to just finally say, gosh, I can't listen to this guy anymore. Fine. <laughs> Here's a red Ferrari. Now, it happens to be a matchbox, James. You weren't clear. You just said red Ferrari. The truth is, I don't think we think enough of God. And Jesus cautions us about that. We don't think highly enough of a God who already loves us enough to know what we need and want the best for us that we feel like we've got to pour out a pile of words to convince God to get on our side. God's not already on your side. This is the God of the universe who made you because God chose to. How many times do I have to tell you? You're a choice. God's choice. Every single one of you is God's choice. Every single unique expression of God in this room and online wherever you are and the ones who aren't watching and who never will watch and who never will care, those are all unique expressions of the goodness of God from eternity. Once in forever. There's only one once and forever you that exists and God chose to make you. If God chose to make you just the way you are, doesn't God want to hear what you have to say? You don't have to keep putting out a pile of words thinking that somehow it's going to attract everyone's attention. I'm going to start trying to make, trying, you notice the word trying. I'm going to start practicing saying shorter pastoral prayers when it's time for me to say a pastoral prayer. I often get in the middle of it, and I got some words to say, and then I got some more words to say, and then I think some more words to say, and then I say those words and some more words, and oh, I forgot to say these words, and the next thing you know, my pastoral prayer has been just as bad as some of those long, long, eloquent songs, you know, that ones I heard when I was growing up. And I don't even use these and thous, you know, you know, be thankful. Um, the truth of the matter is, you don't need to attract God's attention with a ton of words. You've already got God's undivided attention. God already loves you infinitely as if there were only one of you to love. You're the only one in the universe. God loves you as if you're the only one. And I'm not just saying that. You know, theologians throughout history have said every one of us is loved as if God only had one person to love. Now the other thing is you have to get used to the fact that every blade of grass out in the yard God loves that as if there was only one blade of grass to, to love. And every sand, grain of sand on the beach, God loves that grain of sand as if it were the only grain of sand to love in the entire universe. That's how much love God has. It's beyond words. So no matter how many words you say, you can never cover God's love. Never. So it's not a competition to see who can say the most words or who can repeat the most phrases from the Bible or show what it's all about. In the end, I am convinced that this next phrase holds something we need to realize, and that is in verse 8. 
Don't be like them because your father knows what you need before you ask. Maybe your prayer just needs to be, instead of trying to get a long list, God, you already know. You know what I need. Not just what I want. The red Ferrari was what I wanted. It had nothing to do with needs. You know what I need. And you already love me infinitely. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you that my needs will be met. See, I am convinced that Psalm 4611 holds the truth to what prayer is really all about. Because God already knows us. And God wants us to know God back. Psalm 4611 says, be still and know that I am God. The Hebrew word is not just be still. Desist. Desist from all you're doing. Desist from all you're thinking about. Desist from all the lists that you have made for yourself or that you think God will love me if I can list, take care of this ten list right here. Whether it's the Ten Commandments or whatever it is. Whatever that is, God just wants you to know him. You know what the purpose of the Christian life is? To get lost in God. To know God infinitely. That is the purpose of all life. To ultimately become lost in the eternal love of God. Not so lost that you don't exist anymore. But so lost that you are fulfilled in all that you are. The purpose is to know God. It's not to make God happy. Because God's already happy. And happy is a yuppie word anyway. Happy is not a Christian word. Joy is. Joy comes from deep within us. Happiness is something that you fleetingly chase after, hoping that you'll get to it. And by the way, it's a product, not, uh, you know, it's not something you can ever get to. It's something that's a product of what goes on in your life and the processes. But the truth is, God is already a part of our lives, and all God wants you to do is know God. To disarm yourself. And I'm not talking about just here. Now this is where we've run into a problem for the last 800 years since the rise of scholasticism. Uh, in scholasticism, with the rise of scholasticism and the enlightenment, everything became about knowing things up here. So we traded works righteousness for beliefs righteousness. We traded the need to do the things God wants us to do to believing that we had to believe the right things about God or else God couldn't love us. And that was just beliefs righteousness. As if I could earn God's trust by getting the right ten in my belief system. God just wants to know us. And the problem is it can't just be in your head. It has to be with your heart. It has to be with the very thing that our ancestors believed was the purpose of the heart. And it's not just to beat and it's not the seat of your emotions. It is the organ in your body that is designed to perceive God. And not only perceive God, but to live God and to be a part of what God is doing. And God gave you a body so that you could know God when you lifted hands or danced in the street. Don't dance in the street. It's dangerous. Cars come by in northern Virginia. They will squish you flat, just like a grape. Don't do it. 
but dance in your front yard. That's fine. In your living room. We are meant to know God with our embodiment. We are meant to know God with our hearts. And we are meant to know God with our minds. And if you think you can just know God with your mind, then all you know is about God. You only know about God, which is nice. I know a lot of things about God. know a lot of things about the Bible. I can read it in several different languages. Who cares? God doesn't really. <laughs> God doesn't care what language I use. God wants me to know him. God wants me to love him. God wants me to live him. And God wants me to reflect that love in everything that I do all the time, to be passionate about it, to be over the edge with it, to be on fire with a love that just blazes to those around us and melts the other cold hearts I come in contact with. I think that the United Methodist Church missed it with their mission statement, which is the mission statement of the entire United Methodist Church, not ours. We have a more specific one, but theirs is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Sounds kind of nice. But the truth is, only transformed people transform people. So the first people that have to be transformed is us. Not just disciples who follow a guy around who know a lot, who can quote a few scriptures. I can quote a few scriptures for you. What Christ really wants us to do, I'm convinced in this passage, when he talks about prayers, he wants us to, in, to live out 2 Corinthians 5.17. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's not me anymore. It's the love of God that lives in and through me. That's what prayer does. It breaks down the walls we've built between ourselves and the very God who is all around us all the time. God is not this carpet, but it's in, God's in this carpet. God's not that light, but God's in that light. God's not Wayne, but God sure as heck is in Wayne. Have you ever had a Wayne hug? If you haven't, Line up after worship. Be embraced by the love of God. Because in those arms of Wayne's and in that heart is the love of God. God is already in all of us and around us. Paul says it best in his sermon about the unknown God. In God we live and move and have our being. It's not that everything is God. It's that God is in everything. You can't meet a person that isn't filled with God, even the ones who say they don't believe. Whether they know it or not, God's already in there. But the way you're going to help them discover that in themselves is certainly not by telling them they're going straight to hell if they don't start believing the way you do. That is the fastest way to lose God's argument in a second. None of you get to choose. None of you. And if you're arrogant enough to believe you do, you haven't gotten close to God. And you haven't read the Bible. I don't know who's going to hell. I don't know what hell looks like. I don't know what heaven looks like. I just know I get to spend eternity with God. That's it. And that's enough. That's enough. What I think prayer is, what I think the Bible tells us prayer is, is knowing 
living and loving God without letting the words get in the way. You know what God's first language was? Silence. Before he spoke and said, let there be light, there was nothing. Not a sound. Not a peep. So how are we going to get to know the first language of God? Be still and know I am God. You can do it in centering prayer. You can do it in meditation, whatever you want to call it. You can do it in Bible study. You can do it when you pray. If you have a list, I'm not telling you not to pray a list. There are things on my heart that I need to lift up to God. But God already knows what I need long before I sit down. So I don't need to beg, plead, borrow, steal, shake God. God wants to hear my heart, but God already knows what I need. God is not interested in long lists of words. So I'm going to try to work on, when I lead prayer, in worship and in other places, not trying to cover all my bases. God's already got all the bases covered. Just lifting up the key places, the key moments. I don't need to ask God to be here. God's already here. It's always funny. The prayer of invocation is what normally starts every worship and service in the United Methodist Church. Not at St. James, but the prayer of invocation. God, please come. I don't have to ask God to come. God's already here. The only reason we say it out loud is maybe to remind us God is already here. We don't have to beg him in a song. We don't have to beg him in a prayer to come and be here because God is already here. We do those things to remind us God is already here. And that when God is here, it's a gift, not something we can demand. When God shows up, it's God's choice to show up. But I'm convinced God shows up every Sunday morning. I just sometimes miss it. So let your prayer life be empty. Let your prayer life be a space where God comes to play. Let your prayer life be a space that's open. God wants to hear what's on your heart. And God wants to change your heart too. And make it bigger. Just like at the end of the Grinch. His heart grew some huge number. God wants that for us. And God can create that space in us if we stop putting our stuff on God and let God put God's stuff on us. I think that's what prayer is, opening ourselves to God's stuff. And I think that's what Jesus says. Don't make it a list and don't think that God doesn't already know. Because God does. All right, your assignment this week is to go home and pray a lot of words. <laughs> lots and lots and lots of words. No. If you pray lots of words, God loves you just the same. You just don't need them. At least according to Jesus, and I kind of think that guy was pretty in touch with God, but just a thought. So... Go make some space in your life for God.